Welcome to Afternoon Light, the podcast of the Robert Menzies Institute at the University of Melbourne. I'm Georgina Downer and I'm the host of Afternoon Light. Each week I speak to leading thinkers from around the world about Robert Menzies, his life, his era and his enduring legacy. Hello and on today's episode of the Afternoon Light podcast, I'm talking to Professor Tom Frame, who has had many, many, many roles and occupations in his life, from Naval Officer, Anglican Bishop to the Defence Force, a member of the Australian War Memorial Council, various ethics oversight bodies and a theological college principal. I first met virtually, of course, because it was in a time of COVID, Tom in his capacity as the former first director of the John Howard Prime Ministerial Library, which he established in 2017. But today, Tom, we are going to talk about uh, Harold Holt, because you are the author among 50 or so books that you've written. You're the author of The Life and Death of Harold Holt. So welcome to the Afternoon Light podcast, Tom. Georgina, thank you. And can I say that of all of those books, and they're about lots of different subjects, um, the one that I most enjoyed writing, bar none, by a long way, was the life and death of Harold Holt. Really? I actually found the task of writing it was so enjoyable, in part because it was a little bit of a greenfield site. There hadn't been much written on Harold, and we can talk about that. But I don't know what it was. Maybe it was just the time, my own limited memories. I was born in 1962. Harold drowned at the end of 1967. But I remember the day that he drowned because I remember my father making disparaging remarks about someone so stupid getting in the water at Cheviot Beach on that day. But it was just a book I thought for, for me and at that stage of my writing ambitions, it was a good book to do. And I enjoyed it. And it's, I think, one of the few books I've written. I got to the end and thought, oh, I feel sad. I have to take leave of this and this man whose picture was next to my computer for two years wow. and thinking, I, I hope this does justice to someone who I had a real affection for. Tom, this is probably a good place to start. Then, Why did you decide to write a biography of Harold Holt? I really came at it from two directions. One of them is I wanted to do a political biography. I'd not done that before, written, I think, I don't know, 10 books or 12 books or something by the time I started work on Harold. But so there was a political biography was of interest to me. And I think political biographies can be done well and done badly. And I'd like to think I did a reasonable job of the one that I did because I was reading a lot at the time. I read Ian Hancock's uh, biography of John Gorton and thought this was fascinating. And I knew John Gorton and I interviewed John Gorton many times. So having met him and then read the book was good. But it was largely because I'd encountered Harold when I was working on my doctoral thesis, which became one of my books called Where Fate Calls, the HMAS Voyager Tragedy. And there were two royal commissions into the loss of Voyager, the first one immediately after to try to establish why it occurred. And the second was three years later to deal with allegations that the captain of Voyager was incapacitated on the night of the collision and that material that should have been made known to the first commission wasn't presented. And Harold decided after a parliamentary debate where he changed his mind halfway through that there wouldn't be a royal commission, then there would be a royal commission. And it didn't make Harold look good. And it was his first public stoush with the member for Warringah, the maverick Ted Sinjin, who, if people have not heard of Ted Sinjin, need to find out about Ted Sinjin because he was one of a kind. Um, and so I thought, look, I've written a little bit about Harold and this particular incident but there was no decent book on Harold in existence. There'd been many on Sir Robert. Even Alan Martin had just finished, I think, his volume two. And I thought, look, there's 
a need and scope for a decent book on a man who I thought wasn't well known other than the manner of his death yeah. and, and a regrettable throwaway line on the White House lawn all the way with LBJ <laughs> in June of 1956. So you're right. I don't think people do appreciate what an incredible man he was in, you know, in terms of his early entry into politics, the fact that you know, he, he was a minister and then decided to join the AIF. There's an incredible story to be told about this huge personality of Australian politics whose, of course, life was tragically cut short and we, we kind of didn't get the rest of the story because of that. So tell me about early Harold uh, and what you found out about him. Look, it was fascinating because I, I started off with the very unreliable My Life and Harry by Dame Zara, which oh. <laughs> um, is un, unreliable. I mean, I, the whole family history was not well researched and Zara embellished, if not created, some parts of the whole story that she thought would be better received by the readership of her book, which appeared after he drowned. So Harold was born, and you're going to love this, across the street from where I was born in Stanmore. Uh, Is that right? In New South Wales. <laughs> yeah. So I was born on Cambridge Street and he was born just around the corner in 1908. His parents' relationship was not very stable. I think that'd be true to say. And he and his younger brother, Cliff, who was two years younger, uh, they, I think, suffered from the fact that parents' relationship wasn't great. And his father, Tom Holt, was a organiser or a, a field officer for J.C. Williamson's and for Hoyt Cinemas and was away a great deal. Tom Holt, as it turned out, became an interesting uh, figure. If anyone has ever visited the Foxtel studios in Sydney, oh, yes. Um, yes. they're actually located on Thomas Holt Drive. That's Harold's father. Is that right? Uh, <laughs> indeed. And if Australians also can recall, older Australians can remember the actor Frank Thring, who may be known to some who was in uh, Beyond Thunderdome with Mad Max. Oh, okay, uh, The right. third Mad Max film. Yeah. He was also in a number of Cecil B. DeMille epics. That Harold's father married Viola Thring, Frank Thring's sister. But the interesting part was Viola was actually Harold's girlfriend and he brought his girlfriend home to meet Dad and Dad ended up marrying her, which is another story. Oh, wow. Completely. That's quite confusing. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but Harold, quite Harold fluid. moved around. <laughs> <laughs> Quite fluid indeed. That's how we describe it in a non-judgmental way. Uh, one of Harold's earliest friends was Bill McMahon. They were together as uh, schoolboys. And then Harold, uh, his parents' marriage ended. His mother died. He was, to some degree, moved around family relatives until he said, I want to go and live in Melbourne. I want to go to you know, Wesley College. And um, that's what he did. So although Harold Holt was seen to be quintessentially Melbourne establishment. He was, wasn't he? He wasn't. No. He was born in uh, Stanmore in Sydney and he had one term at a one-teacher school at a place called Nubba, which is near Murrumbateman in New South Wales, and that may be totally obscure, but he had this very disrupted childhood. And I argue that he didn't have the kind of affection and I think personal tenderness that children need to feel they belong. Mm. And I think that's why in later life he didn't like being unpopular and sometimes was too concerned about being liked. And I think that's a feature of his life. He's probably the most personable prime minister we may have had. Uh, just people loved his company, or certainly women did. Now, he went to school in Melbourne. He then went to Melbourne University. He then got involved in, well, he was a lawyer, but he got involved in politics and met the young Robert Menzies, 
Who'd and, also uh, been to Wesley and had also gone to Melbourne University and also studied law. So he was following right. in so illustrious footsteps. <laughs> there was a real connection. I think it was probably in the nature of younger brother, older brother, because Sir Robert always referred to Harold as young Harold. Now, when he became Prime Minister, he was 57 and still being called young Harold. And, uh, and he died at exactly the age that I am now, which is uh, 59 and seven months. And so he was still young Harold, even when he was Prime Minister to, to Sir Robert, who was his mentor and encouraged him towards the UAP and then helped him become the member for Faulkner in 1935. He followed a blind barrister, a man called Maxwell, and he retired and Harold became the member for Faulkner. And then he and uh, Sir Robert were very, very close. It was kind of like an older brother, younger brother thing. And then unsurprisingly, when Sir Robert became Prime Minister, he invited Harold to be a minister and at one stage was the youngest minister in Australia and then had the, um, the surprise uh, tagline of being the godfather to a million Australian children because Harold introduced child endowment. Oh, that right. was Harold's great <laughs> The only bachelor in the Cabinet, and yet he's the, he's the, the he's grandfather the go- or godfather. <laughs> because uh, he brings in child endowment. So their relationship was close. It was one of reverence towards Sir Robert and encouragement towards Harold. And then they had the great cataclysm of Sir Robert's um, prime ministership ended, and we could talk about that in some depth if you wanted to. Uh, y- yes, I, I think that's really important because, as you say, there was this sort of brotherly, affectionate relationship, and thanks to Menzies, Harold Holt was minister at the age of 30 I mean it's hard to hard to think that that's possible in this day and age but then Harold rather regrettably feels compelled to support the the downfall of Menzies as prime minister the first time around that's right and he and and look he did this with a great deal of personal anguish I mean you know sometimes we if we remember the godfather movies and when someone's about to be whacked someone says oh it's nothing personal Well, for Harold Holt, everything was personal. Everything was personal. And so when he found himself in that group that thought Menzies should not continue as Prime Minister, it left a permanent mark on him. It was just terrible, 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 terrible. And uh, I don't think, and I said, well, I don't think, I'll I'll say this with confidence, I don't think uh, there's any sign that he ever got over it because when he became Prime Minister himself, he said, to Zara. The first thing he said on the phone was, I've got this the way I wanted it. I didn't have to step over anyone's dead body. And when people talk about Harold Holt as being this docile, loyal deputy of Menzies, if they don't understand the anguish and pain of 1941, mm. then they do not understand that Harold said, you know, I, I'm not going to raise my hand against the old man. He like some people, he called him the old man. I'm not going to raise my hand. He he has earned the right to stay as long as he wants. And so after Harold became the deputy leader and some people thought the heir apparent until Barwick turned up and then I think everyone quickly saw that Sir Garfield Barwick was not going to be Menzies' successor, Harold took that personal anguish from 41 and said, you know, I've made a pledge, I'm not going to stand against him and I won't and didn't. And that incredible deference across the party to Menzies is something you, you know it's almost unparalleled. I you know I can't can't think of another leader who's who's experienced that. I mean, obviously John Howard never never lost the the party leadership despite rumblings towards the end of the Howard government in two thousand six seven. That 
incredible deference to the leadership of Menzies despite the fact that he'd been in the position for 16 years. You know, you would have thought some in the party room might be thinking, well, maybe someone else could have a turn, mate, but no, they, they wouldn't. Now, that's incredible. But obviously, as you said, the Harold Holt had that experience of the 41 first term of Menzies' prime ministership and um, presumably didn't want to repeat that act of disloyalty. Well, I think there's a number of levels. I think the first thing is that the 1943 people, if they're not students of history, they would have no reason to think about the 1943 election, which was a total, utter, unmitigated thrashing of the UAP. And even Harold Holt was saying behind the scenes that this party is rotten. This mm. party isn't a party. It might be a non-Labor party, but it's that's it. It's a non-Labor party. And Harold's view was, and Harold was a genuine liberal moderate, his view was that this party was a mess. And so the debt to Sir Robert is not only that he'd been Prime Minister but had fallen, but he'd been a wartime Prime Minister and it was his inability to get on with colleagues as much as anything that led to his his demise, but that he's gone from the 1943 thrashing to establishing a new party with an organisation that is viable, then wins well until 1961. So why would you get rid of him until 1961 when the Liberal Party came very, very close to losing? Why would you change Menzies in that period? He's a towering figure. He has a sublime intellect. He is able to control his cabinet and there's some fairly disputatious characters among them. And when the 61 election, when they go within a seat of losing, the attitude of Harold and others is, well, Harold's saying, I'm the treasurer, I'm the heir apparent, but we still have confidence in the leader. It's external factors like the economy that have worked against us, not that he's no longer the best person to lead the party. And so I think that... Uh, People think that he's still relatively at the top of his game until the end of 1965 when, at that Christmas, he confides to Tony Eggleton, his press secretary, that he's deciding to go. And I've seen nothing to suggest to me that Harold had any belief that uh, Sir Robert was going to go other than the day that he said, gentlemen, this is my last cabinet meeting, I'm not going to lead you. Mm. Harold had no special warning, no inkling, and hadn't even predicted when Menzies might go. I think, in fact... As I understand it, he was falling asleep at the cabinet meeting. Harold had a tendency to do that, <laughs> not off, when Sir Robert said, that's it. And Harold kind of rouses himself and says, this is my chance. So he would never have moved against him, but then neither would anyone else. He's such a towering figure, that's the picture that you've painted, that people thought, who is the other obvious person? And polls at the time, Georgina, polls at the time were not showing anyone having any popularity that would cause Menzies any problems. Hasluck didn't, Holt didn't. Um, I can't think of, you know, Casey never did. There's just no one who is, or Barwick, when Barwick enters Parliament, no one is coming close to Sir Robert. He's the one that the public are saying he's the most obvious person. So when he decides to retire, you know, Harold doesn't have a big base to go on, <laughs> but he has some party room. The public aren't looking to him as the next Prime Minister. They presume he will. But Menzies takes people by surprise when he goes, despite being what was it, 71, when he makes the decision? It's interesting talking to people who were you know, alive and sort of adult, at, you know, I guess a, a stage of political consciousness at the time of Menzies' retirement, saying, you know, when you said the word Prime Minister, the only person you could think of was Menzies at that time. He'd been Prime Minister for so long. Whereas now, I mean, say Prime Minister, I think, well, you know, I could think of 
John Howard, Scott Morrison, I mean, Albanese, now Malcolm Turnbull. Think of a huge list of people. But, but back in 1966, Prime Minister meant Robert Menzies. It didn't mean anyone else because no one else had been Prime Minister for so long. Tom, before we get on to Harold Holt as as a Prime Minister himself, which I really want to discuss. Tell me, there's a curious stage of Harold Holt's political career in 1940, so we're just backtracking slightly, when he decides to he's, – he's a minister and he decides to join the Australian Imperial Force. It obviously, is World War II. It's a very difficult time for the country, but it's hard to imagine a minister stepping back and joining the AIF and entering entering into the war in in active service. What what led to this? Well, part of it was that, uh, and as you know, Sir Robert himself was the victim of some jibes about what did you do in the Great War? You were of a of a conscriptable age. Uh, what were you doing? And so, Harold, without any prompting from anyone, and he's never. He did not write anything extensively about the decision, but what he said in Parliament was that there were other men of his age who were volunteering and who were going, and he'd had a number of people approach him when he made a plain that he was open to war service because he felt in the national interest, why should a parliamentarian be excluded? He had feelers about joining the Air Force or coming into the Air Force as an officer and things like that, and typical of Harold said, no, no, I'll just join the Army as a gunner. And so he was Gunner Holt, and he went to Huckapunyal in uh, in northern Victoria to train, and he would presumably go to North Africa, he would go to the Middle East, wherever his battery went, he was in the artillery, and that's what he would do for the duration. And there was a kind of sense that if you did that, your seat would be protected for you and that people would know that you're going off to do war service and that you were coming back. So there was almost like a your future would be regarded in a particular way if you did this. There were a number of other parliamentarians that did it, okay. not a large number, mm. because not that many of them were of the age where military service was an option to them. They were older men. Of course. And therefore, how could they, you know, they're just, quite frankly, they're too old. So I think Harold tried to give an example to others. And as it turned out, after the air crash here in Canberra, led to a number of people being killed, this uh, Minister Fairburn and others. Um, the call came, a Commonwealth vehicle drove out onto the range at Puckapunyal and said, where's Gunnar Holt? And uh, Gunnar Holt was told that the Prime Minister would like him to come and rejoin the Cabinet. So Harold, Harold being nobody, Gunnar Holt, got in a ministerial car and then joined the cabinet, and uh, that continued, of course. But, but Tom, how was the how was this received? I mean, what was the media reporting at the time? Did you read read articles about this? It must have, maybe it seemed quite normal for the times. They were very very different and difficult times, but it's hard it to wasn't imagine. extraordinary. It, yeah, look, it wasn't extraordinary. I mean, one of the things about Harold Holt is that every time he was mentioned in any newspaper clipping. Uh, newspaper story. He clipped it and put it in a scrapbook. Um, he didn't. He didn't <laughs> I, I may letters. know others who do that. <laughs> <laughs> I once said to Tim Fisher, who all Tim Fisher did the same thing every time. And I said to Tim, if you attended the opening of a door um, and it had been covered <laughs> by a newspaper, you'd have the clipping. He said, "Damn right, I would." Um, so every clipping of Tim Fisher we have here in the Howard Library, every clipping of Harold Holt is in these scrapbooks, which he kept. And at the time, it was regarded as being not remarkable, but it was something newsworthy. And it was mainly that. 
he'd gone from being a, a, a soldier to coming back to the cabinet and the difference in the, the context. And it's interesting that people like Joe Gullett and some others who later were leading figures in the Liberal Party actually said Harold might have been better if he'd stayed in the army and got that experience rather than coming back because he never left Australia. He never went overseas. He didn't finish his training. And a number of people said it would have been better had he joined the army, got the experience, it would have given him experience with men of different shapes and sizes. And also because in his own cabinet, many years later, returned men, veterans, were treated with a particular respect and regard that others were not. And so, for instance, people like Garfield Barwick, he was chided for the fact that he, you know, Gar, where were you during the war? And Eddie Ward used to taunt him and others, you know, where were you during the war? You were making money as a lawyer. Now, that's cruel mm-hmm. and it's unfortunate. That's what people did. The, the playing the man, not the ball, that's not something that's new. So the press reporting was positive and it was understandable that the Menzies government needed him and he came back. My own personal view is that probably would have done Harold. It would have been good for Harold to have had that experience and I think he would have built on it. It might have meant that he was better able to take tough decisions in difficult circumstances, which is one of the criticisms that was later made of him. That Not that he avoided hard decisions, but he didn't make them with as, as much authority and confidence as he might have. I wonder if that's to do with so many years as in deference to to Menzies that he only, you know, he'd been in Parliament since the age of 27, first became a minister at 30 and then, what, 27 years basically serving under the leadership of Menzies, both both out of government and in in government, obviously, for an extensive period of time, that taking the tough decisions himself rather than having Menzies as the the ultimate decision-maker was very unfamiliar. There would have been very little, little training for that. But tell me... As a minister in the Menzies government from 49 through to 66, what, what would you say were Harold Holt's major achievements and paving the way, of course, for him taking over in, in 66? Well, he had a number of portfolios. Uh, the, the main ones were immigration, and I think that's where he made his mark. He was also Minister for Labor and National Service. He then got the job that he had to do, which he didn't like, which was the Treasury. Yeah. Yeah. Well, if you want to be a leader, it's a good job to do. (laughs) Uh, But he was the first one, Georgine, he was the first one to be the treasurer who was a Liberal previous to that time because McEwen wanted trade. And so prior to that time, the custom had been that the deputy, in case to say Arthur Fadden and before him, that if it was a coalition, then the leader of the country party would be the treasurer. Now, McEwen didn't want that and Harold took the job and he didn't like it at all. And to be honest... Did he do his best work? Not really. I mean, it was the kind of measures that were open to the Treasurer or open to the Treasurer now uh, hugely expanded on what was available to, to Harold Holt, what you could actually do to change the economic conditions in the country. Probably the best thing he did was decimalisation, which was right oh, at the end. That's useful. In fact, didn't occur. <laughs> yeah, decimalisation occurred after the actual C day, currency day, was after the month after he became Prime Minister. But he had a personal interest in all of the currency stuff and probably was the main person persuading or cajoling Sir Robert into not letting the currency be called the royal to go with dollars and cents. So that's the treasury. It's not his greatest work. He didn't enjoy it. He didn't really want to do it, but he did it. And the decimalisation is the big thing. Coming back, Labor and National Service, he 
was very effective in forging relationships with the trade union movement, particularly Albert uh, Monk of the ACTU. So the idea that it's impossible for a coalition minister for IR to have good relations with the union movement, Harold Holt proved that isn't true. Now, he had fights with the Wharfies. Everyone's had fights with the Wharfies. <laughs> uh, it was no different in his day. But I do think that he created, through first half of the 1950s, as good a relationship between the government and the workforce as was possible at the time. And he was also the first um, Australian president in the International Labor Organization, and he's on the coalition side. In terms of immigration, I actually think that's where his best work was done as a minister. He sold immigration to the Australian people. He sold immigration to the countries that had people who wanted to come to Australia because Harold Holt would often talk about the fight between Australia and Canada as to who would get the best migrants. There was active, energetic competition between Australia and South Africa and Canada uh, as to who would get the best migrants. And Harold believed in immigration, believed it was a nation-building portfolio, believed in what migrants could bring, believed that for our economic well-being we needed to have a larger population base, a broader skills base. And uh, he enjoyed the work, he did it well, was respected and admired, and up until, you know, he was surpassed by Philip Ruddock, uh, he was the longest-serving immigration minister. And, of course, he was followed by someone um, Familiar that to me. you would not. Yeah. Uh, you're, you know, Sir Alec Downer followed him. And between the two of them, the whole uh, tenor of immigration changed from being these foreigners are taking our jobs to we need the supplementary skills of people coming into this country. And the Migration Act, which was originally 35 pages, it was the case that it just got bigger and bigger and bigger on its way to becoming now, alongside the Tax Act, the biggest piece of Commonwealth legislation. And so uh, I think Harold did it really, really well. And uh, I think Alec Downer did it well, building on Harold's foundation. And there was great acceptance of migrants so that our population throughout the 1950s increased by 3% every year. Amazing. And that's while maintaining social homogeneity. And it wasn't because they were all Brits. It was a spread of people thoughtfully done uh, and I think the country's been enriched. Yes, well, of course, that was a period when um, you started to see more people coming from other European countries, just not just Britain and Ireland. So it's quite interesting the cultural mix in Australia is is really diversifying beyond that original source of, of migrants and uh, that opens up such a, a different type of Australia you know, this is a time of white Australia, of course. So with the white Australia policies accepted across party lines and, you know, anyone who says it was, you know, anything different is, is just, is just wrong. It was, it was the accepted orthodoxy, wasn't it, Tom? And in was, fact, Labor, Labor was keener on it. I mean, that's yeah, what people don't realize. Yeah. Labor was keener on it because they took the view that this was going to displace the jobs of those who were what they thought were their natural constituency. And indeed, When Harold basically ran the white Australia policy down in his prime ministership, the the, the principal um, complainant was Arthur Caldwell, the leader of the opposition. Now, Sir Robert himself wasn't uh, necessarily supportive of the liberalisation that Harold Holt brought about, but certainly Harold, within weeks of becoming prime minister with Hubert Opperman, were doing their best to get rid of these, what Harold thought were, you know, racist exemptions, 
And it is wrong, as a matter of fact, to give Gough Whitlam credit for, you know, ending the white Australia policy. It wasn't ended by Gough. I mean, it was dismantled by Harold and he started the momentum that basically was uh, completed probably in the Fraser years, less so than in the Whitlam years. But it's part of that, you know, as you say, people somehow think that, you know, if they don't know politics well, that, oh, well, it was all the coalition being anti-migrant. This is nonsense. No, yeah, exactly, exactly. Tell me, getting now onto Harold Holt as, as a Prime Minister, um, so succession planning, and we talked about this the other day, of course, at the Howard Library Conference in Canberra, succession planning is, is difficult. Um, there are lots of egos involved, personalities, and it's not like a corporate world where you have a board who makes these decisions and takes this seriously and it's sort of taken out of the hands of the, of the players. Harold Holt succeeds Menzies and as you described it, you know, Menzies' departure comes very suddenly. Everyone's taken unawares. Um, how did this happen? Was was Harold Holt in the end the designated successor of Menzies? Yes, yes. I mean, not outwardly, not openly. I mean, Sir Robert was of the view, and this is what he told Tony Eggleton, was that he was confident, confident that Harold would be elected unopposed as leader of the Liberal Party and he was confident that Harold would do good work but he didn't presume that his colleagues would necessarily concur with any um, anointing of Harold. There was nothing like that. Harold himself wasn't actually prepared, as I mentioned yeah. before. It came as much as a surprise. Yeah, <laughs> much as a surprise to him than, than others. And um, nobody, although there weren't, in in terms of public polling, people saying you know Holt's fifty percent and Hasluck's thirty percent and Snedden's whatever. Um, it was very, very clear to everybody that Harold, uh, by his experience and by the regard in which he was held in the party room, would be the Prime Minister. And so when the party room meeting was held, he was elected unopposed, which is what everyone thought would happen. And uh, I would say, and I have said, that I think it was the um, most orderly transition of power ever mm-hmm. in Australian political history. It was done seamlessly and... Uh, when my book on this, uh, on Harold Holt, was launched by Peter Costello, he, he, he had to get in the line, which is in the book, that this was a, an orderly and seamless transition of power and that there was much to be learned from this. <laughs> uh, and this happens in 2005, the year before the Howard Costello thing became public. But um, Peter did make the point that, you know, it was all set up for Harold. Um, there were no... Menzies didn't set people off against each other nor do I think, and I think that commentators will say this are mistaken, that Menzies, you know, banished all of his uh, rivals to other places. Uh, it, I find no evidence of that. Uh, I, his position was secure and because it was supreme. Yeah. Now, Harold became the Prime Minister and everyone said, oh, well, of course, and the public knew Harold. Now, what they wanted to see was a kind of change of tone and they got that. So Sir Robert had double-breasted suits. Well, Harold never wore them deliberately, you know, change of faith. Harold um, did not make his first trip to the UK. He went to Asia. He did things like getting rid of some of the exclusions in the way in which we're accepting people in the in the immigration program. He decided that national servicemen would fight in South Vietnam. He did a number of things early in his prime ministership to make the point that, that you know, um, that he was different from his successor, from his predecessor, but that the interesting thing was to not make anyone fear that, you know, there was a radical change mm. because the people seemed to want more of what they had. 
the ministry was changed negligibly. You know, like everyone was kept where they were. This is business as usual. The leader is changing a different style but the same substance, you know, good coalition government. So I think that was one of the problems because a very large backbench, some people thought Menzies is going, Holt's the new leader, we'll refresh the cabinet. No, Harold didn't do that. And a few people with some ambitions, um, I think, thought, oh, well, how many more years now do I have to wait for my chance? Mm-hmm. Um, indeed. And, of course, I think one of the other big achievements of Harold Holt that, that he, the nailed very, well, he had to nail them very quickly because, of course, his prime ministership was so short, but was the, the referendum on recognition of Indigenous people in the constitution, the powers over the, um, the race powers in the constitution. And, you know, the approach he took was different from the approach that Menzies was planning to take. And he obviously expanded, expanded upon what, what Menzies was prepared to undertake. And that was a substantial obviously a substantial achievement of the of the Holt government and I think really defines defines his legacy for Australia. Yes, I mean it's another one of those things where people think the coalition is uh, uh, is antithetical to good relations with Indigenous community and that wasn't the case. So my understanding of Harold's approach to the referendum is drawn from some fragments, some documents, but to some degree, it was shaped by a conversation I had with ex-Senator Reg Withers. And Reg told me that Menzies had told him that he wasn't not especially confident that the Commonwealth would do any better than the states in Indigenous affairs. And I remember Reg saying to me, oh, Menzies said, you know, what makes you think the Commonwealth won't bugger it up, unquote. That was the phrase that he used, that, that why would someone in Canberra trying to legislate for affairs of Aboriginal people in Arnhem Land, why would they be any better placed? And so Harold, uh, if you like, inherited the need for a referendum. And Harold's yes. view was he wasn't previously persuaded that it was necessary, but having been an immigration minister and having dealt with racist uh, uh, sentiments, he took the view that if people thought it was racist, then that was a bad thing in and of itself. Mm. Therefore, to clarify the Commonwealth's power, and that's principally what it was, to clarify the Commonwealth's power, to put it beyond all doubt that the Commonwealth could legislate for Aborigines in the States, we'll have this referendum. And he was adamant that there should be no funded no case uh, and that he vigorously campaigned on the yes case. And as it turned out, uh, his own brother died the weekend of the referendum. Uh, And then the next day he went overseas on a prolonged foreign trip. So there's a lot going on for Harold and it was regarded as being uh, a wonderful success on his part in that the the vote was so high, Mm. there wasn't, and and there was no enthusiasm for the no case and it was done in a way that didn't inflame any suggestion that special treatment is being afforded Aboriginal people. On the heels of that, he then established within the Prime Minister's Department uh, what became the Department of, uh, of of. Indigenous Affairs, Aboriginal Affairs, it started in the PM's department because Harold was convinced that if people thought there was inequality, then there probably was inequality, therefore we need to address this. So he's a kind of accidental pioneer in this field and, again, I don't think has received the credit that he deserves for something that, as you've pointed out, was a was a turning point um, in in uh, in this part of, um, you know, our national life. Tom... 
Menzies, as you were saying before, he basically anoints Harold as his successor, but their worldviews, as you described them, are, are a bit different. I mean, they're of the same political party. Harold Holt's obviously served under Menzies in, in various portfolios and, and absolutely supported him and his government. But there was a divergence, obviously, of opinion. You say um, Harold Holt was a was a liberal moderate, uh, you know, obviously socially quite liberal, progressive, as we might say these days. How did they diverge? I mean, Menzies is painted as very conservative, of course, in light of contemporary values. And he's an older man. I mean, yeah. okay, he's in his 70s, Harold. But Harold's in his late 50s. But I think they're formed by different things. And Harold moved in different social circles. Yes. I mean, he's almost premium. Um, you know, he's the kind of guy that's happy on the race course. He would listen in Parliament, in the chamber. He'd, he'd have an earplug on a transistor listening to horse races. Um, now, that, today that would have you pilloried and hand, hounded out of the place. But, you know, um, there was a kind of, um, I wouldn't say naughty side to Harold, but there was certainly a kind of more carefree spirit that was there. And, and, and I think it takes the form that um, Harold doesn't have any particular affection for the UK. He spent most of his time in the 1950s in third world countries or you know, places that were, re- being, that were re- um, rebuilt after the war. Um, I, I just don't see that, that, you know, British from the bootstraps, that's not Harold. He did early on call England the home country but stopped doing that pretty quickly. Um, he was also keen on getting rid of, for instance, he reinstated Australian passport. On our passports, they were briefly had Australia in 1949, then Australia disappeared. Harold Holt's government brought back putting Australia on the front of the passports oh, uh, within six months of his time. So there was this much more sense of Australia is a country at the foot of Asia, it has to be connected, and also that the cultural life of Australia was probably languishing. Uh, you know, the cultural cringe, I think Harold was attuned to that. Um, he was a man that w- wasn't particularly attracted to intellectual pursuits. He was not an intellectual and never pretended to be. He was a public administrator. So questions of legal principle didn't particularly interest him. He wasn't a person to write books. I don't think he ever would have written a memoir of his own. <laughs> when Lord Bruce said to him in the year in which he died, when Harold died, 1967, about getting a a biographer, Harold just showed no interest whatsoever. He didn't, he, he just didn't keep stuff for me. That's his biography. <laughs> How dare him? You know, Harold, How dare him? <laughs> yeah, Harold thought of, of me. So you, you piece together bits of his life. He was also, I think, much more concerned that his way was to have good relations with people. Mm. And again, it was Alec Downer who said he was such a personable individual, likable. There was a warm humanity about him that. Okay, not to say Menzies was cold and heartless, but Harold just drew people to himself and possibly had an easier mixing style with a wider range of people. Things like wanting to endow the arts, things like wanting Australians to be concerned about being Australia, not that Menzies didn't, but that Harold did it more. I think they played towards his own sentiments. The other thing was that for Harold, from I think reasonable evidence, marriage was a fairly porous institution. (laughs) Yes. Uh, and so whereas, you know, Menzies had Dame Patty, um, mm. Harold uh, had the affections of uh, women other than Zara and that at the time of his death had been conducting uh, a relationship with another woman and 
Zara claims that she knew at the time. Now, some people would say, well, that's his business and nobody else's. But you can't imagine Sir Robert having another lady somewhere. They're just That's just not within their makeup. No, but then you sort of read Troy Brampson's latest biography on Bob Hawke and realise that other Prime Ministers subsequent have had porous relationship with, with marriage. <laughs> I wanted to um, ask you to reflect on the first election Harold Holt faced as Prime Minister in November 1966. It's a pretty incredible result and he must have been pretty chuffed with it. Uh, look, it was an incredible result. I mean, they basically <laughs> looked... Labor was no longer really a viable opposition. It ended Arthur Caldwell's time. He was replaced by Gough Whitlam. It was a huge majority. But most importantly for Harold, he now had his mandate. He did, As yeah. he saw. So he's come along and he's, he's finished off Menzies' term. In October 1966, he wins a mighty victory. He's riding high. He's established himself as the Prime Minister. And, of course, he's helped by Lyndon Johnson, who is the first incumbent president to visit Australia and, uh, and he's a Democrat, and yet he's supporting the Coalition Prime Minister in order to defeat, consciously intending to defeat a Labor uh, opposition leader. And Harold, by the end of October 1966, uh, he's, that for him is the pinnacle. He's riding high. But importantly, uh, it's now his government and not, if you like, the complementary um, last third of the, of the Menzies government. It's a really big moment. And it really means that Labor's got at least at least two elections to come back. Such was the majority. And I think it really says that when the coalition gets wins, it wins big. When it loses, it loses big. And that Australian governments generally get two terms. Well, every every government has got two terms since 1931, um, if you count because Gough had two terms because he went to the people after 16 months. And so it's so big uh, a victory that uh, Whitlam and the Labor Party realise it's a six-year program to get back to government. And of course, you know we know that's what they do do. Yeah, I mean, just looking at the results, fifty-six point nine percent two-party preferred result for the coalition, forty-nine point nine percent first preference vote for the coalition. It's, I mean, you just think of what happened the other day in in May in the federal election. Neither of the major political parties got got um, even close to 40%, 40% of the primary vote. Yeah. I mean, they're well in the 30s, in the low 30s. So it's it's incredible how, how different the political climate is. And, and, and we probably can't get back to that. No. You know, we probably – because, you know, you get um, Holt wins big, Fraser wins big, Howard wins big. But the days of the government getting 50, Labor getting 40 and 10% for the rest are possibly gone forever. Now. Yeah. That comes at the price. I actually don't think the price is worth paying for what you get, but certainly, as you've pointed out, um, 56% two-party, I mean, it's just devastating. And I think probably how uh, Harold thought he had a bit of a buffer yeah. that that would carry at least one term. But the coalition is somewhat impatient when leaders don't succeed. <laughs> so I think he thought he was only as good as his last election. And come 67, the Senate election didn't go so well, and you get the murmurers going. So... You know, there's, people can be a little bit fickle, particularly on the coalition side, I feel. And, and tell me, Tom, before we get on to the end, um, and, and that happens pretty quickly, unfortunately, but tell me about Harold Holt and LBJ. Is it so? <laughs> I mean, we're familiar with all the way with LBJ, but, but, but paint a picture of the broader, the broader story there. <laughs> well, again, people just see this as being sycophancy, but it's nothing of the sort. I mean, it sounds it. And people say, well, he can't make it sound other than it was. But let me give some background as you've asked. 
Johnson and Holt are born in the same month. Um, they're both born in August of 1908. They um, enter public life in the same year. Oh, right. They yes. both join the military in the same year. Now, Johnson sees war service, Harold doesn't, but they're, and, and they meet in Melbourne in 1942 and play tennis together. Oh. So it's a long-standing friendship. And then in the 50s, um, they had some casual connection, I'd have to say. It's not particularly close. But when Harold becomes Prime Minister and he links with Lyndon, they just click, mm. like John Howard with George Bush. Now, I don't know how and why John Howard and George Bush click because they don't seem to me to be similar people, but they're neither to Harold and Lyndon. They're on the opposite sides of the political divide. One's from Melbourne, the other one's a Texan. Um, but they just seem to click and they talked frankly they even at one Camp David meeting just gave each other the briefing notices that they'd been given by the officials. <laughs> so, Harold, what have you been told? Lyndon, what have you been told? And they just they, they exchanged them. There was a real openness there and, and Harold could see how Australia could help Johnson and the war in Vietnam with the changing political fortunes both in the US and, and in Australia where the tide turns against the war not until 1968 but there's indications that it's becoming less popular and particularly conscription changes it because everyone now has an interest because everybody, at least families with young men, could be conscripted. So it was a close relationship and it was, um, I think, even further strengthened because Lady Bird Johnson and Zara just seemed to click as well <laughs> and they liked each other's company. And even after Harold had drowned, um, Zara went to stay with the Johnsons. Oh, um, did she? They were oh. Yeah, they were friends. And uh, the first... Uh, foreigner to have a, uh, an American warship named after them is Harold Holt. Really? So, so Johnson said there will be a USS Harold E. Holt, the first foreigner to have an American warship named after them. So that is really significant. That's the depth of the friendship. And indeed, one of the curious things is when, when Gorton visited in 68 and Tony Eggleton had been with Harold and with as press secretary and with Gorton, um, when Tony was the last person to get in the helicopter to fly away from, I think it was Camp David, um, Johnson kind of whispered in Tony's ear, it's not the same, Tony. It's not the same. <laughs> you know, Because he and Harold were just so close yeah. and uh, they just seemed to click. Now, when that happens on a personal level, it also means that things professionally can work. Yes. And, uh, and, and, and Harold could even say to Lyndon, when Lyndon Johnson was pushing him for more troops in Vietnam, he kind of said, Lyndon, don't ask me because it's going to get embarrassing because I have to decline. And it takes a particular kind of relationship for one national leader to say to another, don't ask me because you're just embarrassing me. <laughs> you know, I mean, that goes beyond diplomacy. That goes to friendship. Yeah. Uh, and John said, okay, Harold, okay, I won't ask you for any more troops in Vietnam, you know, because you've said to yeah. me it'll embarrass me personally. So there was a concern of Johnson for Holt and his own political standing. So when he says, oh, Mr President, whenever you think you're without a friend in the world, remember that in a far corner there'll always be a country that'll be all the way with LBJ. Where did it come from? Well, Harold had seen it on an election poster for Johnson's re-election in 1964. That was Johnson's election slogan in 64, all the way with LBJ. And indeed, Johnson knew that Harold had been getting a lot of criticism in Australia for saying that. And he wrote Harold his personal note, which is just handwritten note that says, oh, I was talking to the Thai Prime Minister the other day and I mentioned to him your difficulties and he replied, 
better all the way with uh, LBJ than half a win with Ho Chi Minh. <laughs> <laughs> and the czar is this getting. So, so Johnson reports this to, to Harold from the Thai Prime Minister. And I can't remember whether Harold released that to the public, but, you know, there was a friendly kind of banter there. And, uh, That's wonderful. You know, yeah, yeah. So I, I think people should not be unfair in realising that, first of all, people do make, throw, you know, there are throwaway lines and sometimes they're best thrown away. And that was just one of them. Yeah. It was just being nice to a friend and it backfired. Yeah. And, you know, a throwaway line and you're hung, drawn and quartered for it. It's, yeah. It's, uh, yeah, it's difficult. Very politics can be very cruel, very unfair. Um, tell me, let let's finish this wonderful discussion on. Um, well, it's a, a sad note, of course. Um, the disappearance of Harold Holt on Cheviot Beach, uh, on the Mornington Peninsula in Victoria. Um, what what happened, Tom? Was it was it the North Koreans? He, he, no, it was Chinese. Oh, it was Chinese. No, he, it was Chinese. I thought it was the North no, Koreans. He, Maybe no, that's where we went wrong. <laughs> well, so the, the whole idea of a Chinese submarine uh, came from a book by Anthony Gray called The Prime Minister Was a Spy, which was based on just the bizarre recollections of Ronald Mervyn Titcombe, who was a naval officer who I interviewed not long before he died. Titcombe told Gray that Harold was a Chinese spy. Titcombe had been a naval diver and had been involved in naval intelligence and claimed to know things about Harold, which weren't true. I mean, I like one of his stepson's line. Um, he couldn't have been a Chinese spy, didn't even like Chinese food. That's how bizarre the thing was. So the whole idea that he was a Chinese spy came from a book, which in the end they printed 50,000, sold 8,000, the rest were pulped. And I have interviewed Anthony Gray, who told me there was a grave in Beijing. I said, fine, show me the grave and we'll settle it for once. So I went to, I think, extreme lengths to check the story out. I went, I got all of my naval friends to give me the charts off Cheviot Beach where the sand was, where it would be possible to bottom a submarine. And I remember I was somewhere and then Senator George Brandis came up to me and said, I read your whole whole book. Oh, but that chapter on the submarine, that was just a waste of time. That was silly. That was whatever. I said, well, I'm sorry, Senator. I said, but that's what everyone kind of thinks might have happened or at least finds it amusing. But... He simply uh, went, he was without, he was with some friends. He was getting a bit hot and irritated, it was a bit humid. He said, I'm just going to go and wet myself. He got in up to his knees, somehow slipped. It was sand. He got dragged out into an area in the middle of Cheviot Beach, which even on a good day is rough, and uh, that was the last that was seen of him. And the beach is called Cheviot Beach after a vessel called SS Cheviot, which sank there, it was wrecked in the 1880s, of the 35 people who drowned, only seven bodies were recovered. Oh. If you drown, you end up in uh, you end up in Bass Strait. You get you get taken away. Now, if Harold had gone, it, there's a uh, beyond the beach, about 150 meters out, um, the the rock drops away quite significantly. If he banged his head, drowned, it's quite likely he was eaten by crayfish and sea lice which means that his body would not have floated. Um, I'm sorry if anyone's listening to this while they're having their lunch, but that's what happened. If someone drowns and their stomach um, is perforated, they don't blow up when the gases of their body uh, uh, start to give them buoyancy. Harold just couldn't be found. 
And no. the, the naval doctors who were there, they got there at about 7 o'clock. They wouldn't get in the water. It was too rough. They came back the next day and uh, it was plain that he was gone. So it was a bad decision. It was reckless. It was possibly showing off in front of younger people. Look, I'm not scared of the water. You know, I'm 59. I'm going to get into the water. Um, it was just a dumb thing to do. And in Australia, um, since 1945, you know, more than half of drownings don't produce a body or don't lead to a body being recovered. Mm. And it just so happened that he's the Prime Minister. Well, these statistics are no respecter of public office. So he drowned. That's it. He yeah. just drowned. And he was presumed dead several days later. And then a week later, there was the memorial service at St Paul's Cathedral in Melbourne. And then Jack McEwen was appointed Prime Minister until the Liberal Party could elect a successor. And that's when they surprised everybody by choosing Senator Gordon. Um, and unfortunately, Harold was forgotten pretty quickly. There was almost a kind of reluctance to to dwell, maybe thinking it would upset the family. And you get all those kind of terrible jokes. In New South Wales, the joke was um, waiting for, for Cronulla to win a premiership was like leaving the porch light on for Harold Holt. Oh, um, <laughs> And then the other one was um, there was a shark doing a circumnavigation of Australia until it came to Cheviot Beach in a screaming halt. Um, that's how tasteless they were. Are they in your uh, book? Magazine. <laughs> yeah, I've mentioned some of them. <laughs> Only from the point of view that people just tried to, uh, some, I mean, typically Australian. Sure. I mean, the, even the, Make light even of the a tragedy, area, yeah. Yeah, so even in Malvern, in the swimming pool, yes. um, the Harold Holt Memorial Swimming Baths. Can yeah. you believe it? My children did what swimming lessons known? there. <laughs> yeah, and everyone knows him as Dead Harry's. Um, you know, the pool's known as Dead Harry's. And then down on Cheviot Beach, it's the Harold Holt Marine Reserve. I mean, how ironic. And I remember Bill Bryson was doing the travel writer, was doing his book, and I saw him in an airport lounge and I went up and spoke to him about you know, Harold Holt and the rest of it. And he, he just looked at me as though you belong to a strange race of people, you Australians, <laughs> you know. Yes, yeah, we do. Um, you know, we thought it was humorous. He just thought I think it was macabre. <laughs> well, therein lies the difference between Australian humour and American humour, I'm sure. Um, Tom Frame, it's been a, a wonderful discussion about Harold Holt. Um, thank you so much for your time. And uh, I, I know our listeners are going to really, really enjoy this podcast. It's uh, you've, you've opened up so much knowledge that needs to be shared. And um, I really do thank you for that. That's very kind of my thanks to you and also to your listeners. The Afternoon Light podcast is brought to you by the Robert Menzies Institute at the University of Melbourne. You can find more about the Institute and our podcast at robertmenziesinstitute.org.au. We're also on Twitter, on Facebook and LinkedIn. We look forward to you joining our show next week. Thank you.